But the more impactful conversation that I had was the one that I had with my therapist after that incident. My therapist asked me, well, were you being loud? Did you raise your voice? And I responded, you know what? I probably did. And she said, well, that's okay. You know, they often say that people that use a louder tone are often using the voice of the unheard. Have you ever felt unheard by your teammates? And when I tell you that hit me so hard, you know how many times I've felt voiceless? I felt like even if I did share my experience or my story, no one would listen. Even when I did try to share my opinion in meetings, no one would listen. They would just try to convince me that I was wrong. I've been in meetings where I've said a certain opinion, no one listens, then a white colleague says the same thing with less data to back it up. And they say, oh my God, what a genius. Papa, write that down. I'm like, y'all serious? So my therapist was trying to explain to me, well, maybe you tried to raise your voice because you felt like that was the last resort. And you know what? Maybe she was right. The problem is that I think most of us get to the point where we are labeled aggressive, where we are labeled, insert whatever negative adjective you want to include before we're able to understand the power of our voice. Welcome to another episode of the Quien Do It Is podcast brought to you by Plural. With this being the 50th episode, yes, the 50th episode, it's a moment to celebrate. It's a moment to look back of what I've learned in the past episodes, but also it's a moment for me to share my full story around why I launched this podcast and why I decided to make my mission redefining professionalism. You see, most people think that the code switching and the assimilation start when you first join corporate America. When you get that first adult, quote unquote, adult job, I believe it starts way earlier than when you even think about work. I think it starts at home. And to really understand where that idea of professionalism even comes from, I think we need to even look before us, before our parents, maybe even look at their parents. You got to really stop and think about what type of life did my grandparents live? Did they have to assimilate? If so, why? Did they pass on the idea of assimilation to your parents? And did your parents just continue passing it down to you? Well, where does it stop? Is it going to stop with you? Are you going to be the generation that says no more code switching, no more assimilation, no more fear to be our most authentic self, despite the environment? That's what I said. <laughs> I wanted to be the generation that stopped that tradition that stopped that trajectory of losing ourselves in a certain way. But let's get into where it all started. For me, I always reference my grandfather. My abuelo, Rafael, was my primary father figure growing up. With my family being from the Dominican Republic and immigrating to the United States, I want to set the picture for you all on what it was like growing up in the Dominican Republic for my grandparents. They actually grew up during the time of El Jefe. His name was Rafael Trujillo. He was the Dominican dictator 
who ruled the Dominican Republic from February 1930 until his assassination in May 1961. There have been various stories, articles, publications, books, movies, documentaries about Rafael Trujillo. But there were so many painful memories that you had to live through and experience if you were there. He was known to be an ethnic cleanser. He ordered the death of thousands of Haitians. He had rigged elections. He monopolized industries to capture the majority of the profits. There have even been stories of the entire country just being riddled with spies on his payroll. So that if, let's say you're at a bar and someone says like, yo, that Trujillo dude, man, fuck that guy. There are people listening all the time to the point that someone would hear it, snitch on you, get paid for it, and then you're the one being thrown in jail and punished. I've heard, I've heard stories of people saying that they even had to have a picture of Trujillo in their apartment at all times, just hanging there. It'd be a picture of Jesus and a picture of Trujillo, just like right next to each other. Like you have to show that level of love and admiration for the dude, for him to believe, I, I, this family's on my side. Dominicans were constantly being stopped on the streets as well. Just to make sure you had the right paperwork as far as like your residency, your citizenship, among others. With my grandfather living during this time, this idea of perception started at a really early age. He realized if he dressed a certain way, he would be less likely to be questioned, less likely to be stopped. And if he's ever applying for things at a government level, he'd probably be more likely to be approved. For example, it was really difficult to leave the country under Trujillo's dictatorship, getting visas or getting any excuse to travel outside of the Dominican Republic for extended periods of time was really difficult. So perception played a big role into that. Perception plays into a person's reputation, and that reputation then gets them in the door. Now, I'm not saying that if you, I'm not saying if you threw on a suit back in the day, all your problems will be solved, but it does influence a person's reputation and how others perceive you was the idea. There's actually a really good example of this in New York City during the stop and frisk era. Cas Marte, who is the founder and CEO of Conbody, back in the day, he actually was a drug dealer. During the stop and frisk era, back in the day when Cas was in the LES, working the streets and having employees that were working under him, his employees would often get stopped by police with no questions asked, just based on their appearance, how they're dressed, how they look. There's a certain perception and assumption of what an alleged drug dealer would look like, right? So one day him and his partners had this idea of, yo, what if our employees started wearing suits instead of quote unquote street clothes? I wonder if the cops would stop us anymore. So he tested it out. And the same cops that would stop his employees on a daily basis walked right past those same police officers. But this time they had suits on. They didn't even recognize them. They didn't even stop them. Not only did they not stop them, but his employees wearing suits actually attracted a brand new clientele for him to a clientele that was spending a lot more. So this idea of perception and reputation 
as it relates to the aesthetics and what we see is powerful. It plays into the bias that, that we have as a society. These biases are real. Now, Cas Marte wasn't the originator of this idea of the idea of dressing a certain way to change people, change people's perception, but it's a good example of my, what my grandfather started doing. My abuelo Rafael Marte, not Trujillo, <laughs> was a dapper dude. He would always be dressed up in a suit and tie for anything. He would take the train uptown just to be able to get a drink with his boys. And I'm not talking about get a drink at a bar or a club or a lounge. I'm talking about he would go to his boy's apartment to meet up with a few friends just to get a drink at their crib. And he would have a full-on suit and tie on. I'm talking about all of that with the fedora with a feather on the side. You know what I mean? He was not playing. And I think it was this idea around perception as it relates to professionalism. And as I live my life, there were other examples of people telling me that I should look and dress a certain way in order to be accepted or be successful. I remember when I went to high school, shout out Cardinal Hayes High School in the Bronx, New York. It was an all boys Catholic high school. And some of the rules that they had always bugged me. Like I never understood it. For example, we had a uniform, which is pretty common in Catholic schools, right? We had the we had the blazer, we had to wear slacks, we had to wear a tie, button up, dress shoes. But even this idea of facial hair, they didn't allow facial hair below the earlobe. In fact, most of the students at the school, if they did have facial hair, it would just be a mustache. I really got to look up these pictures and upload them so y'all can see them. In addition to facial hair, we also weren't allowed to, ha to have an afro. We weren't allowed to have braids, dreadlocks, among other hairstyles. And it's this idea of professionalism and what we should aspire to look. It was essentially training for many corporate roles at the time. I mean, it's a little different now when you're in tech roles and you got people like Mark Zuckerberg going to work in the same t-shirt every day and just some Adidas flip-flops. But back when I was in school, my aspiration was to work in finance, banking, like that was the dream job for most people, because that was where the money was at. Even if you look at finance right now, they still don't allow most of these styles, especially facial hair. They still make their associates shave. Isn't that wild? Like there's nothing inherently wrong with facial hair, but there's a perception of what we associate success with. Going back to the examples of my grandfather, he would often tell me, well, do you see presidents, CEOs with beards, tattoos, do-rags? And I thought to myself, nah. So the lesson he was trying to teach me is that if I wanted to be successful and if I wanted to receive a positive perception from people, then I should mirror some of these leaders that are being displayed to us. That said, I think what he was indirectly telling me was that I had to be more white to be successful. Because if you looked at the CEOs of the world, if you looked at the presidents of the world, this is pre-Obama, they were older white men. I remember, that's exactly what I did though. When I first, when I got my first job, I looked at my closet and was like, I need to go shopping. I need the business casual fit. 
And that was everything from head to toe. On my head, I was like, I need to get a haircut. I need to trim the beard. At the time, I probably didn't even have a beard. I think I had like a like a goatee that was really low. Had the really thin sideburns, had the Caesar haircut. I was looking good. Then with the fit, I'm thinking I probably went into work first day. I didn't wear no Patagonia vest looking like an investment banker, but I had that long sleeve button up, tucked in with the with the with some sort of khakis and the shoes. Yo, the shoes is something else. Those them, those them prom shoes that you wore like once a year, but now that you got a real job, you got to bust them out again. I think I had two pairs of shoes that I would go with. I had the classic black lace-up shoes, but then I had the casual Dominican loafers. You know what I'm talking about. Them loafers that a bunch of Dominican dads and uncles be rocking with them tight-ass pants and a tucked in polo shirt looking like a bachata artist yeah that was me <laughs> but even the simple fact of tucking in my my dress shirt and i felt like i was going to a prom it felt so formal i've always felt so uncomfortable with it but it was one of those things i looked around it was like yo what is my manager wearing oh where he's doing that i'm gonna do that like i treated my manager or his manager as mannequins I treated them as a mannequin in H&M or Zara or wherever the hell I was shopping and was like, yo, give me that whole outfit. And then I ended up just having two separate closets, not physically, but figuratively. I had my work clothes and then I had my outside of work clothes and they looked completely different. And when you think about the cost, like these clothes weren't cheap. Not that I was shopping at Gucci or anything, but the costs still add up, especially when you're starting out, especially when you're first starting your career, still living at home, and at home is the projects. <laughs> you know what I mean? But it was part of the routine. And I did that for such a long time. And I always thought, like, if I keep doing that, I mean, even when I go shopping, even when I used to go shopping with my boy, he'd be like, yo, would you wear that? And I'd be like, eh, I mean, I wouldn't wear it on the weekend, but I could see myself wearing that for work. Like, what? Why should I even have to buy a separate wardrobe for work? For me, at least, it started with the wardrobe, but it evolved to so much more after that. Because what I realized was that although I was, quote unquote, looking the part or dressing for the part, it didn't really take away from the microaggressions of the racism remember one interview I had, I went into this office where I was going to go for a round, a few rounds of interviews. So essentially it was going to be uh, maybe three or four 30 to 40 minute interviews with a couple of different people coming in and out of the room to have a conversation with me. And I was in a full suit looking dapper. I, I was looking fly. Had the, had the suit and tie with the shoes and the, the, the fancy socks. I was looking, I was looking sharp. And this one dude comes in the interview room and just throws out some racist ass questions. Dude was like, yo, your resume looks great. Like there's no doubt that you have the experience, but let me ask you a question. What's your favorite Jordan? I'm like, what? You're like Jordans, the sneakers. Like what, what do you, what are your favorite Jordans? 
And in my head, I'm like, yo, why is he asking me about my favorite Jordans? I go on to answer the question, though. I say, you know what? It's definitely between the 11s or the 12s. He didn't stop there, though. He was like, I, I, I get that. I get that. What about Kendrick Lamar or J. Cole? Who would you rather listen to? And at that point, I'm like, yo, the audacity. Yo, the audacity of this white male asking me these racist questions. And the only reason I'm saying that he's a white male from Greenwich, Connecticut is to set the scene and give you an idea of what this dude looks like and where he's from. Now, stop and ask yourself, you think this is a question that he asks during every interview? Or do you think he was treating me differently because of the color of my skin and what I look like? That's the definition of racism is treating someone differently because of the color of their skin. I would assume that this is not a standard interview question, neither one of them. And in that moment, that was one example of how I suppress parts of my authenticity beyond just appearance. Because I, I would consider myself fearless. I would consider myself outspoken. Not that I enjoy conflict, but I don't avoid it. Instead, I take the opportunity to share my opinion, to stand by my values and call, call out the bullshit. But in that moment, like many of us, when we're put in certain situations and there is a power structure in place, this person wouldn't be managing me, but would have an impact on my career once I joined the company. Would HR even believe me if I reported the situation? Even worse, I didn't even want to report the situation because I wanted the job that badly. So I put up with it. I answered the question. I joked around during the conversation. And then at the end of all the interviews, HR came to speak with me, asked how my experience went went and I said it all went really well I'm excited to hear back from you all and hopefully I'm still in consideration for the role I ended up getting the job and working there for about a year but that's the thing with our authenticity it goes beyond just how we look how we speak it goes into our values and sometimes we even go as far as suppressing those and this often happens because we feel like we don't have leverage versus our job. We don't want to lose or risk that situation. What's interesting about that whole situation to me is that I don't really know why he asked me that question. I don't know if he was trying to be relatable. I don't know if he was trying to make me feel more comfortable. And I don't know what kind of assumptions he had about people that liked Jordans or liked Kendrick Lamar and J. Cole. I don't think there's anything wrong with those people. I am one of those people that like Jordans and Kendrick Lamar and J. Cole. What was his association with people that enjoyed that, that type of music and fashion? And if I answered the question a certain way, then what if I said I wasn't even familiar with Jordans or hip hop? Was I not going to get the job? I should not be, neither one of these questions had anything to do with the job qualifications. I should be judged based on the skills and experience that I bring to the table and nothing else. There was actually this other time where I was doing a group project and it was my responsibility to create PowerPoint slides for the presentation that we were doing. And there I am feeling, you know, pretty good about the slides, although 
I prefaced the fact that it was a work in progress. It was a draft. And I received feedback, verbal feedback out loud during a meeting when a coworker said, Pavel, these slides look ghetto. Hmm. Ghetto? Out of all words, I thought in my head. She could have also confirmed that it was a work in progress. She could have shared feedback like, oh, these slides look great. I do think that we should update slides three, four, and five because of, you know, insert whatever reason. Nah, she used the word ghetto. And I've never heard her share that feedback with anyone else on slides that objectively look way worse than my slides. Why does she use the word ghetto? I've always wondered that. Again, was she just using that word with me? Because of me, did she feel that it was appropriate context? I don't know. But again, I didn't say anything because I didn't want to risk the opportunity, which was my job. Let me share one more example of some of my experiences in corporate. And this last one is really the catalyst as to why I decided to make this podcast. And it's around the time I was labeled aggressive at work. If you really know me, aggressive is not a word that you would associate with me. I've told a bunch of people this story and they're like, wait, you were labeled as aggressive? How? You're so nice. You're welcoming. You're encouraging. You know, always smiling, always joking around. Like, how were you labeled aggressive? Let me tell you a story. Well, we had this client presentation and it was a group of about, I don't know, five or six of us. And leaving the client presentation, I shared some feedback as far as like, well, leaving the client presentation, we were, you know, coming out of that client presentation, we were all hopping in a Uber, like a large SUV. And we were talking about the meeting and about the strategy moving forward. And during the conversation, I said, I disagreed. I said, I think we should take this strategy instead and explained why that was. And at the end of it, I said, if that's not the direction of where we're taking this account, I'm totally fine with it, but I just want to make sure that y'all hear my opinion. And it turned into this conversation around like, no, like, I think we should all agree on the strategy. And I'm like, okay, I agree, but it just doesn't seem like that's where we're headed. So I'm fine with just going with wherever y'all go. And it ended up being just this huge back and forth and them trying to convince me as to why my strategy was wrong you know eventually they raised their voice as a response i raised my voice to match their tone and following that situation i was the one being labeled as aggressive i was the one that was told to apologize but the more impactful conversation that i had was the one that i had with my therapist after that incident my therapist asked me well were you being loud did you raise your voice and I responded, you know what? I probably did. And she said, well, that's okay. You know, they often say that people that use a louder tone are often using the voice of the unheard. Have you ever felt unheard by your teammates? And when I tell you that hit me so hard, you know how many times I've felt voiceless? I felt like even if I did share my experience or my story, no one would listen. Even when I did try to share my opinion in meetings, no one would listen. They would just try to convince me that I was wrong. I've been in meetings where I've said a certain opinion, no one listens, then a white colleague 
says the same thing with less data to back it up. And they say, oh my God, what a genius. Babel, write that down. I'm like, y'all serious? So my therapist was trying to explain to me, well, maybe you tried to raise your voice because you felt like that was the last resort. And you know what? Maybe she was right. The problem is that I think most of us get to the point where we are labeled aggressive, where we are labeled, insert whatever negative adjective you want to include, before we're able to understand the power of our voice, before we're able to feel seen, heard, accepted, acknowledged, and valued. I launched this podcast to let people know that you aren't alone. You aren't alone in this experience of feeling like you don't have a voice feeling like you shouldn't speak up because of fear of losing an opportunity. I wanted to let you know that you're not the only person experiencing microaggressions. I want to let you know that you are not the only one suppressing parts of your authenticity and slowly feel like you're losing yourself. I wanted to raise awareness for all of these challenges so that we can together find a solution for them so that we can inspire each other to be our most authentic self, to be fearless to share our stories so that our coworkers know the bullshit that they're putting us through as well. So for people that look like me, I wanna inspire them to be their most authentic self so that we can inspire others to do the same. And as a result, we will redefine professionalism, what it looks like, how it sounds. So we got 50 episodes down, but we're not done yet. In 2022, we're gonna hit hundred episodes. As I mentioned earlier in the episode, our parents and our grandparents were assimilating to survive. We no longer have to do that. We're in positions to thrive and rewrite the narrative. When will it end? Are you going to be the person? Are you going to be the generation that puts a stop to the assimilation, to the code switching, and to these societal standards of professionalism? I think so. We're already starting to see the change. And if you need a reminder of that change, just listen back to one of these episodes of the Came Through What Is podcast. Thanks for listening. And next week, we'll be back with a new guest.